Hey guys, we're continuing today in the series on holy. On the last occasion that I spoke, I discussed what it is to serve a holy God. We looked at God's otherness, how um, holy in the Old Testament means consecrated, set apart. But it also means something that is so completely different to us, something that inspires a sense of reverential awe. And this week, continuing in that theme, I'd like to look at what it is to be a holy people. In um, the New Testament, you may remember I discussed how the, the word holy is the word Greek word hagios, which means awful, not in the sense of horrible, but the, in the sense that, that there's something otherworldly, something that inspires awe. Think perhaps of the book of Acts, where God is doing mighty works through the prophets, through the apostles rather, and Ananias and Sapphira die, and a great fear falls upon the community in which they're operating. It means that, that, that people surrounding um, those who are in, in communion with God understand that something bigger than themselves is going down, that God is on the move. What does that mean for the modern church almost 2,000 years later? What does a holy people look like? The big idea that I'd like to pursue in this sermon is that a holy people is a people who choose a holy God. We explored uh, very briefly on the last occasion that Paul's commandment to the church to be holy because God is holy is a scripture that was taken from the Old Testament. It's in fact a commandment given by Moses to Israel. We find it in Leviticus. It says, For I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. When the people of Israel are commanded to be holy, it is because they occupy the role of image bearer, They are to be holy because God is holy and they bear his image. The idea of being an image bearer of God is one that takes us right back to Genesis, where Adam and Eve are created in the image of God and their role in the Garden of Eden is to bear his image well, to represent him well to the created order. Indeed, to be holy as God is holy is, among much else, a reversal of the fall that happened in the Garden of Eden. Let's have a look at what Satan says in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we read from the ESV, He, that's Satan, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The irony is that it was always God's plan that we would be like God, knowing good and evil. 
the trap that Satan set for Adam and for Eve was that God's goal was that we would, through a process of engagement with him, experience with him, maturing with him, come to the place where experientially we understood the difference between good and evil. In fact, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what has been translated as good and evil, are the, the Hebrew words tov, meaning good, and ra, meaning bad. It may not be morally bad, which is evil. It may simply mean not beneficial. So if you think of an apple, for example, that has gone bad, it hasn't become evil. It's not plotting to kill you. It's just not great to eat. So, so the idea of Ra means that it may be morally evil, but it may also simply not be beneficial or profitable. In the Hebrew mindset, to be able to discern between Tov and Ra, good and bad, is to be mature. And it was God's intention in the garden that he would take Adam and Eve on a journey of discovery with him so that as they became more mature, they would come to know how to discern the difference between good and bad, what is beneficial and what is not. And, and Satan set this trap that there was a shortcut. And really, Satan's, Satan's approach or his modus operandi hasn't changed over millennia. His plan is still to try to get us to take a shortcut which excludes God and focuses on our own understanding and our own experiences. A great example in the Old Testament of how the ability to discern between Tov and Ra, good and bad, is uh, Solomon's coronation. You'll remember that Solomon was the son of David, who came to be one of Israel's greatest leaders. And at the time that he was crowned king, um, he prays a very famous prayer for wisdom. We pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Um, this is Solomon speaking. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to come out or go in. And your servant is in your midst, in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. And here's the relevant part. That I may discern between good and evil, between Tov and Ra. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, but had asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. So, so God explains or demonstrates here that the ability to discern between Tov and Ra is the ability to discern what is right. The ability to discern what is right is, is a key concept in what it means to be the holy people of God. 
We pick this up in the book of Jeremiah, where God, through the prophet Jeremiah, rebukes the people of Israel for falling into exactly the trap that Satan set in the Garden of Eden for Adam and for Eve. In Jeremiah 2, verses 11 to 13, he says this, Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So if you've got your Bible out, I'd like you to underline that. My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit, that which is not beneficial, that which is not tov. So we're going to look in in the succeeding verses at what it means to exchange their glory. Be appalled, writes the prophet. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves or stone vessels, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So, God says, Israel has done two things that are are gravely sinful before him. One, they've abandoned him, the source of living water or running water. Imagine a a fresh river, clean water. And they've hewn for themselves, they've carved out for themselves out of rock. Broken cisterns or broken vats that can't even hold stagnant or dead water. Jeremiah goes on to say at verse 18, And now what do you, the people of Israel, gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? There's there's an interesting idea here. God says it's, it's not enough that you've you've abandoned me, the source of living water, and also in replace of me, in the, in the place of me, you have hewn or, or made, carved out um, stone vessels um, to, to hold stagnant water. That's not bad enough. You also then seek satisfaction, fulfillment from foreign rivers. He refers to the Egypt, uh, to the Nile in Egypt. The Nile was the backbone of the agrarian society of Egypt when the, um, the Nile, which is a, a, an Egyptian god in their pantheon of gods, flooded and, and caused the flood plain to be um, washed with, with nutrients. That's where all the crops were grown. So, so in, in, in the mind, in the Hebrew mind, to return to Egypt would be to return to the things associated with Egypt, including slavery. In in the Christian context, it would be like saying, um, returning to those things that enslaved us before we were believers. Then he says, why do you go to Assyria, to the Euphrates? Euphrates means river, so it's the river river. But it it also means, um, symbolically, it means prosperity. So, So God says, you abandoned me, the source of living waters, and you go down to 
to prosperity and you seek fulfillment in that. And as believers, that's something we can do too. We can turn our back on God and seek our fulfillment, our, our, the satisfaction of our desires in prosperity. The lesson for us as believers is that it's so easy to go back to those things that enslaved us before we were believers and came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. The the central point of the Jeremiah text is this. A holy people are those who choose a holy God to the exclusion of all others. And the more we choose God, the more we will be like him. Have you ever noticed that people who grow old together start to look like each other? Think of an old married couple you know, and how over the years they've grown to look more and more alike. Why do you think that is? Part of the reason is because when you hang around with somebody, you start saying the things that they say, and you start doing the things that they do. And because you're repeatedly doing the things that they do and saying the things that they say, your facial muscles start pulling in the same direction that their facial muscles do, and your face literally transforms to become like theirs. You start sounding like and looking like the one you spend the most time with. And that's what it's like with God too. The more we spend time with him, the more we will sound like him, and the more we will look like him. I think the same applies to 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 owners and their dogs, but I'm not going to dwell on that. Jesus himself puts it this way in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 5, verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your neighbors and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I love that in Isizulu, um, the word for son is um, umfana, means to be like. It literally means to be like, like father, like son. So Jesus says in, in Matthew, be good to those who treat you badly because that's what God does. Be like your father. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And here's the relevant part. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we've heard Paul say, and Moses say, that we must be holy because God is holy. Jesus says, we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. The word translated perfect is is the Greek word teleos. It means the goal, or it means uh, lacking nothing to be complete. It also means completely mature. When Paul says that Jesus is the end of the law to all who believe, it's not primarily the end as in the cessation. It means the goal. Jesus is the telos. Jesus is is the goal at which the law aims. 
Um, Jesus is the sin that the law was aiming to accomplish but could not. Jesus is the completion, the full satisfaction of the law, leaving nothing undone. So if we are to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is to be perfect, is perfect, then it means at least two things. First of all, if we are in Christ and remain in Christ, then we have the perfect righteousness of Christ. It certainly means that. But it means something else. It means that we are to live as those who are completely mature, lacking nothing. In other words, there's nothing required to complete us. He, God, is enough. And, And when we live in a way that demonstrates that we lack nothing, we represent the Father well because there's nothing that, that he lacks. He is complete in every way. This idea of holiness encapsulating or including the idea of wholeness, emotional wholeness, physical wholeness, all of these things, these, these are, are elements of the, the character, the person of God that we have the opportunity to reflect in him. Very importantly, it also carries the idea of being mature. So to be perfect is to be mature. And we've already established that to be perfect means to have the ability to discern between Tov and Ra, to discern between good and bad, to, to be able to identify what is right, what is beneficial, what is profitable. Because we have experienced that God is the source of living water, We choose him over all other vessels that man can make that can't even hold stagnant water, broken cisterns. We choose him. On the idea of stone cisterns, you'll have heard um, last week that Jan spoke really powerfully about the bride who prepares herself for the coming groom. And one of the the things that the bride does is she immerses herself in, in water. And you may remember in the Gospel of John, in, at the wedding of Cana, there are two uh, stone vats which were full of water, and Jesus turns that water into wine. You remember that? Um, those, those were the, the stone vats carrying water that the bride and the groom would have washed themselves in for ceremonial cleansing in anticipation of the wedding. And Jesus took that water and transformed it into wine, which is simultaneously a celebration of joy and delight and and a demonstration of God's love and, and provision as his very first miracle. But it's also a demonstration of the blood that he will shed as he comes to the fulfillment of his ministry. So, so again, God is saying he... Jesus is the fount of living water and the stone cisterns that carry the water for ritual cleansing are not enough. In fact, he takes them and transforms them into something so much greater. You may recall that last week um, we also looked at, at how Jesus was the stone in the desert that, that um, living water came from, running water came from to supply the Israelites dying of thirst in the desert. Jesus 
was foreshadowing something truly profound for the New Testament era, for us. Because Jesus said in the Gospel of John that, that his, his believers, his disciples, would have living water flowing from them which was the demonstration of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he was saying, we would become like Jesus in the desert with, with water flowing out to those who are dying of thirst. We would become those living stones from whom the Holy Spirit would flow forth as living, living water to those who are dying of thirst in the desert of this world. In Christ, we become the very image of the one who provides water to those in the desert. We are called to be holy people, and that looks like something. It looks like taking something off and putting something on, like a coat. Paul writes about it in Colossians. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden within Christ, in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but you must now put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Note almost all of those reflect in what we say. <laughs> Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've, been, you've put off the old self with its practices. He says, it's like you've, sh you, you've taken off your coat, your old coat, that had lying and slander and all of these ungodlinesses, all of these ungodly things. You've put them off, you've taken them off, and have put on the new self. So here's the putting on. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. So, so Paul says that there's a link between the, the renewing of, of our understanding of who God is, what he's like, as we are transformed into his image and carry his image. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, again like a cloak, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. What being a holy people above all else looks like is love. The Bible says that God is love. And if we are to be a holy people, then we walk in love with one another. Whether they deserve, those around us deserve the love or not. 
because God causes his, his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. If we are to be a holy people, we are to be those who choose him above all else and who put on love like a coat and demonstrate that love to a world who desperately needs it. Father, we pray that we would be your holy people, that we would choose you above all others, forsaking every handmade thing that seeks to exalt itself above the knowledge of Christ Jesus. We pray, God, that you would help us to put off all those things from our old life that that is unhelpful, especially the sins of our lips. And that you would help us to put on love. That you would help us, Lord, to reflect you well as we serve one another, as we demonstrate love to a world who doesn't know you. We pray, God, that we would be your people, awful, in the sense that we are a demonstration that God is on the move. And that the supernatural is as real as breathing. We pray, God, in this season, as we look at your holiness, as we explore holy before you, and we have different voices and different perspectives. In all of these things, we pray, your name be glorified, your will be done, and your holy church be built up. In Jesus' name.